of each other, our different diversities, our cultures, but it's most important with God. Our communication with God um, is key. And our relationship with God is only as good as our communication with God. And that communication is called prayer. Dwight L. Moody once commented that he would rather learn to pray than to preach. Because he said, after all, Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, but he did teach them how to pray. Um, and Jesus taught his disciples how to pray because prayer is the most important aspect of our lives. We have may say that intellectually, but behaviorally, I think in the Christian community, prayer is sort of low on the totem pole. Um, study, activity, doing things, sort of is always at the top, but just prayer. So when even when uh, Sherilyn is saying, pray for recess, but she's serious about that. Pray for the church, serious about that. When Jesus said, pray for workers to go out into the harvest, he wasn't just saying, hey, if you feel like it. He was saying, this is important, that we need to be doing this. The rest of our relationships and every other area of our life revolves around our spiritual health. And prayer is what helps define that, helps shows our dependence on God. When we fail to pray, we fail, period. When we fail to pray, we just fail. Um, Revelation says the darkest moment of our life as followers of Christ, Revelation 3 says, when you say, I have no need. I have no need. Our pride is there, and we think that we can just take care of it ourselves. Even in the song, let go of your pride um, and surrender it to Jesus. Martin, Martin Luther said, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Prayer is just that important. Yet so many people lose sight of the importance, and not only the importance, but the power of prayer. I was talking to a person who talks to me, was telling me how he prays every morning. I go, well, what do you do? And he goes, well, every morning I get up and I meditate. I go, what do you mean by meditate? He goes, well, I talk to myself. I go, what do you mean you talk to yourself? He goes, well, I say, you're okay. You're going to make it through the day. This is going to be all right. I, and, you know, you can make it. Nothing is too great. You can accomplish it. And I'm listening to him, and he's talking about all these wonderful, positive thoughts. And then I looked at him, and I go, you know, I don't know how to tell you this. But you're not praying. And he goes, well, yes, I am. I go, well, yeah, you are, but you're praying to yourself. You know, you're just talking to yourself. You're not talking to God. You're not surrendering anything to God. You're not asking God to do it. You're just saying, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, which sounds great, but one day you're going to wake up and you're going to say, you know what, I couldn't do it. And so positive self-affirmation is one thing, but don't call it prayer. Um, it is possible to think that we're praying when all we're doing is expressing our beliefs based on our own personal perception of reality. We get something in our head or we hear something that's wonderful or good and then we just sort of start believing that and then we make that our prayer. We could even address God with familiar terms and titles and repetitive phrases and it still may not be prayer. The result is the same. It could be self-righteous conversation with ourselves because humility is trumped by our pride.
We just sort of think that, you know, I've got this. I don't need your help. And in today's verses, Jesus shows why some prayers seem to be so ineffective. And it's seen in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, just go ahead and take a look, look at that. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you read the um, article for me, I said that I was going to depart for the next two weeks from Matthew and just really focus on prayer, the power of prayer, the importance of prayer, the significance of prayer for our lives. So Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And again, in today's verses, Jesus shows why some prayers seem so ineffective. In these verses, it tells us something about the quality of humility and how that's a prerequisite to effective praying. And he starts out by saying in uh, chapter, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They were just looking down at others. They were here and everybody else was down here. And Jesus had a great deal to say to us about that kind of attitude and why our prayers are ineffective. Because the problem is not just our prayers, but the dominant focus of our whole life. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other one a tax gatherer. At, at first glance, both men had a lot in common. They both were there. They focused on, um, they were Jews, or they wouldn't have been admitted to the temple. Both had a desire to pray. Both believed in the power of God. So they both addressed God. But that's where the similarities end. The prayers they prayed could not have been more different. Their attitude about prayer could not have been more different. The Pharisee's prayer was ineffective, Jesus tells us, because the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Standing by himself um, could mean that it's just sort of in the privacy of his heart, that's his attitude of how he's praying, that I'm not like you, I'm not like them, I'm not like those people. So when I pray, obviously God would hear my prayers versus hearing your prayers. Certainly the prayer he preached never, or prayed, never reached God. It was confined in his little bubble of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. He addressed God, but he didn't pray to God. He told God. He didn't sit there and, and request anything from God. He just told God why he was so good and why all those people were so bad, as if God really had to be informed by any of us. And so he goes on, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pray the tithes of all that I get. See, the prayer that he had never reached any higher than the temple roof. It wasn't prayer at all. And unfortunately, I think that there are times when our prayers 
may be like that. That it's just sort of focusing on I. And so there's basically four reasons why this was no prayer at all. The first one, it was comparative. It was comparative. Let me paraphrase. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when I see how rotten others are compared to me. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these people. You know, people who steal, who do bad things, and who cheat on their wives, or even like this guy over there who works for the IRS. Yes, Lord, I am one of the very, very few who does, does more than even the law requires. You know, I give a tenth of all I get to the temple while everyone else just gives a tenth of their income. I also go without food and water. I fast from sunrise to sunset twice a week. And not just once a year like most of these other folks. Yes, God, thank you that I am not like these other people. Now, we would never pray like that. But you have to ask yourself a question. Do I ever think like that? Do I ever think like that? That I take a look at somebody else and go, you know, I'm a little bit better than them. People used to tell me I was an alcoholic before I admitted I was an alcoholic. And I said, no, I'm not. And they go, what makes you not an alcoholic? I go, I can afford it. These bums can't. I compared myself to a person who had a worse drinking problem than I did. And the only th difference was they couldn't afford it, and I could because I owned the bar. You know? Um, and so it was just that constant comparison. And we do that in so many areas of our life. We compare ourselves. Even when we look at other churches, or we look at other people, there's just this subtle need to compare. And we should never compare. We should contrast. They're different than I am, but they're loved the same as I am. C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. Always looking down on things and people. And of course, when you're looking down, you can't look up. So it's pretty hard to pray for other people or even to pray when you're looking down on someone else. So the Pharisees suffered from two problems, inflation and deflation. He had an inflated view of who he was and a deflated view of who God was or God is. He took himself more seriously and God less seriously. So he had it reversed. We need to take God more seriously and ourselves less seriously. So the Pharisee took the wrong standard. He compared himself with others, looking down on another, another human being rather than looking up to God. And the moment, the moment you feel you are better than someone else, you have just joined the Pharisees. The moment we think we are better than somebody else. We're different, and, but in the eyes of God, we are loved the same. God has given us the only acceptable basis of comparison, Jesus Christ. Suddenly our side glances at other people, you know, goes away. Just because they're not living the way we are, that's not the basis of our judgment. Our status with God is not based on being better than others, yet how many times have we compared our behavior to other people's failures and inadequacies? in order to feel better about ourselves. It's not, not denying wrong behavior, 
that when I point out somebody's behavior in order to feel better about myself, I'm letting my pride prevent me from my humility to just receive Christ and his love and his forgiveness. Um, and when we observe them, there's just a tendency to say, well, God should be happy with me because I'm not like them. You know. And again, we just lose our sense of humility. Notice, note also that the Pharisee's prayer was based on externals. His pride was based on what he did, not what he was, or not who he was, but it was all these things that he did. Both what he did and abstained from doing were the issue. Well, I do these things, or I don't do these things. And I've talked to so many people that just sort of base their theology, they base their identity in Christ, not on who Christ is, or what Christ did for them, but what they do for Christ. What they do for Christ. And you will hear it when a bad thing happens. Well, how come this happened to me? Look at all the things I've done for God. Look, how come these people treat me this way? Because look at all the things I've done for God. And so we sort of, even without realizing it, we base our identity on Christ, on our behavior, not on Christ's salvation and his work in our lives. So he congratulates himself on his moral and religious achievements. And five times he goes, I, I, I. So it's pretty clear who he's worshiping. He's worshiping himself and his behavior. And every man that is puffed up with himself, every man that is dealing with his own pride is in an open war against God. Because God is never going to be second place in any of our lives. And when we put ourselves and our pride there, we are just in an open battle with God. And folks, let me tell you, God always wins. We may have the false assumption that we're winning at some time, but God always wins. And again, the sin of self-righteousness is, is a very subtle one. But in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I've said this, I don't know for how many years. I go, we are all masters of self-deception. Now, I know some of you are saying, I'm not, which proves that you are. Um, but we are all masters of self-deception. You know, I can deceive myself into thinking any kinds of things. You know, I used to give, give the example that I used to, you know, liken myself to Tom Selleck. You know, and then I turn on the light and I go, whoa, where did you show up? You know, who's that person? We, we just... We sometimes just deceive ourselves into thinking something that just isn't true. And so we are. We're masters of self-deception. It's clue that will help us to understand whether we are suffering from the sin of self-righteousness. And it may be deep down in our subconscious. Ask yourself how you worship. On a Sunday morning, in the car, at home, wherever it may be, how do you worship? 
Because if there's a lack of gratitude for what God has done in your life, worship means nothing. But when you really recognize what God has done in your life, and you recognize the power he has used to save you, the love he has used to open the gates of heaven for us, to forgive all of our sins, to show us his grace, when we really understand the depth of what that is, it's going to be pretty hard not to just say, thank you, God. And our prayers and our worship will have a sense of gratitude and praise for what God has done. When we lose sight of that, when we begin to lose sight of all that God has done for us, worship isn't as sweet. It's just a duty. Well, I come in and we worship and it's, you know, and we forget all that God has done for our lives. Having the different testimonies, even having Dan share about recognizing what God has done to heal his heart, just gives that opportunity more and more to be thankful to God for what he's doing in our lives. Here's this kind of a man. His, his thanks is really not thanks to God for what, why he would thank God for what he himself had achieved. Instead of thanking God, he goes, why would I thank God? I did all this myself. I tithe, I do this, I do that, I do that. I don't need to thank God. See, the Pharisee had done it all without God. But if only he had prayed, God, I am so thankful that you have given me the strength and the fortitude to withstand the temptations that other people fail. I thank you that you have given me the ability to love. I thank you for you giving me the ability to respond to you. I thank you for changing my heart. I thank you for loving me in such a way that you sent your son to die for my sins. See, what kind of a heart leads us to prayer? Third, we must go deeper. Jesus wants us to understand how pride twists and distorts our capacity for self-evaluation. See, our minds were meant for truth-gathering. They were. They were meant to respond to God's truth. They're there to collect that information. But the Pharisees' prayer shows how our minds can trick us. We can ignore reality, overlook things that don't fit our perception of reality. This is what I believe is true about me. This is what I believe is true about God. And then God says, no, this is what's true, but I instead form my opinion on my own perception of reality instead of saying, okay, what does God have to say? And pride blinds a person to their own faults. It magnifies the failures and faults of others. There have been times when I've asked Gwen, and it's really sort of stupid of me to do this, but I ask her, I go, what do you really think? I should have just settled with, what do you think? And then after she gave her response, say, okay, I'm good with that. But then I'll say, what do you really think? And she'll go, do you really want the truth? And again, one of those defining moments. And if I say, no, I'm in, I'm, I can live in my self-deception. But when I say yes, she gives me 
truth that I didn't see, that I didn't see. And it's hard sometimes for us to allow somebody else to speak truth into our lives. Um, and very rarely do we go and invite somebody to speak truth into our lives. So it's possible to delude ourselves into thinking that we are right with God because of our own accomplishments and goodness because we just see what we want to see, whether it's truth or not. That's why some of our supposed prayers never reach God. The purpose of prayer is to see things as they are, to see ourselves as we are, and to see God as he is. And God wants us to come to grips with who we really are. Our hopes, our dreams, our failures, our sins, our missed opportunities, our potential in our relationship with him. When we are honest with who we are and what we want to compare it with who he is and what his will is for us, we can pray a prayer that he will answer. Another reason the Pharisees' prayer never reached God was that it lacked humility. It just lacked humility. Authentic humility is an outward expression of gratitude and honesty and courage to grow. It asks three crucial questions. Why do I have that which I was given? Why do I have that which that I was given? Why do I have all the blessings that God has given me? You know, and to just be thankful for that. You know, another way of saying it is, what do I have that I was not given? You know, everything that I have was given to me by God. Everything I have. You know, I may think that I earned it, that I worked for it, that I deserved it. The very fact that God gave me the opportunity to be born here in the United States and to experience the things I have, to come from the family I have came from, to have the friends that I have, to have the church that we have. All of that was given to me by God. It was nothing that I earned. It was nothing that I deserved. It was all a gift from God. Second question, who am I really? Who am I really? You know, I can portray an image of one thing, but who am I in my heart? Who am I in my attitudes? Who am I in my thought process? And then third, what are the next steps of growth for me? What are the next steps of growth? When I'm asking those questions, it changes the way I think. It changes how I respond. And see, the Pharisees could or would not ask those types of penetrating questions. They just believed who they were. They didn't think they needed to take any more steps of growth. They had already achieved it all. And everything that they had, they earned it on their own and deserved it. So most, but most damaging of all is the Pharisees were satisfied with themselves. It is a tragic state of self-deception when we can't see the difference between where we are and where God would have us go. It's just a tragic state of self-deception. We are still being formed. We are still being transformed. God is still working in our life. If there's anyone here who thinks that they've arrived, you're in a sad place. 
Because if God can't change you, God can't transform you any more than you already are, then you can just have to look in the mirror and say, this is as good as it's ever going to get. This is as good as it's ever going to get. And yet God says, you know, I have so much more for you. I have so many more opportunities. But that pride keeps us from growth. So Jesus exposed his humility. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The invitation there in Matthew 11, 28 through 29, was to share the heart of God. To share the heart of God. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A number of years ago, William Willimon, who was a um, chaplain for Duke University, strode to the pulpit and announced, if your marriage is happy, if you have no addictions, if your children are all obedient and respectful, if you can say all the words to the creed by heart and have no major problems with believing the Bible in all of it, then you can leave now. The service is not for you. Um, he was right. The Christian faith is for those who know they can't make it without God. They just can't make it without God. That's why Paul writes in Philippians, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, folks, you're at war with God. It really is that simple. And you just have to choose who you really want to be at war with. And who do you want to have as your allies in that war? Because there is war going on out there, and I'm sort of thinking that having God as my ally is a whole lot better than having anybody else. The pride of the Pharisee was based on his lack of need for God. The publican, the task collector's prayer, is in startling contrast. He desperately needed God. Let me read it from the message. The task collector slumped in the shadows, way in the back of the temple, out of sight. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven as was common amongst those who came to pray, but rather he pounded his chest over and over again, crying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. The tax collector saw himself as the greatest sinner, Probably with some, somewhat of an honest cause, tax collectors were the scum of Jewish society. Um, they were the IRS of the Roman government. They charged exorbitant rates. 
They skimmed extra money off the top. They were considered traitors to the nation of Israel. You know, we can all relate to that. Um, and so you wonder what brought the publican to the point, what brought the tax collector to the point where he went into the temple and just had an honest acknowledgement of who he was. See, we never outgrow the need for God's love. We never outgrow the need for God's forgiveness, his guidance, his indwelling spirit power. And I'm aware of my own, in my own life of areas that I still need to grow, where I just need God. I see it in my opportunities. I see it in my failures. I see it in my behaviors that sometimes just ignore God in my life. One of the reasons why I just feel this constant need for prayer, renewal of prayer in my own life, is because when a pastor prays, there's a chance for a revival. And when there's a revival, there's a change in his heart. And he has a greater passion for his people. He has a greater passion for his, the word. He has a greater joy in preaching and teaching. He has a greater passion and joy for the work of the ministry. I need that. And it's not like I felt that I was losing it. But it just being with the guys from M3 and to be challenged by them and the things that are going on in their life, I go, you know what? There's so many areas that I just need to continue to grow. That I just can't coast out. That I want to, you know, finish out on a high note not just sort of coasting out. And so that's why I just feel the importance of constantly making this um, a key for me, is, is this prayer. The conclusion of the parable reveals how God responded to the praying of the Pharisee and the praying of the publican. He did not hear or respond to the pride of the Pharisee. He just didn't hear it, didn't respond to it because it wasn't a prayer to God. But he responded to the prayer of the tax collector and said, your prayer has justified you. Has justified you. What an amazing thought that when we pray, God looks down at us and says, your prayers have justified you. When he saw, said to the tax collector, um, that your prayers have, haven't been justified, but the tax collector or the tax collector's prayers have been justified, and the Pharisees weren't. It was a 180 degree turn from the theology of the day. And it was all based on humility. Finally, Jesus brings home the application of the parable in verse um, 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If we try to exalt ourselves, we will be brought down. When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. How we pray is significant. And the fact that we do pray is just so important. If we're going to see revival in the city of Aurora, if we're going to see a revival at River Valley, if we're going to see revival in our families, in our hearts, in our lives, 
It all starts with prayer. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. And I thank you for the importance of prayer. And I thank you that you just constantly, throughout the scripture, were teaching people how to pray. And Lord, I ask your forgiveness for just not making that a priority in my life. That it's easier just to rely on past experiences or thoughts or personal perceptions of reality to make conclusions without first coming to you for prayer. Coming to you in prayer for guidance, for understanding, for direction. And so, Father, I just ask that you continue to move in my life. That because of a revival in my heart, because of prayer, that I can be the pastor that you have called me to be. That you renew that passion, the joy of preaching, of teaching, of being with people, and just resting in the assurance of your grace, your love, your power. Again, Father, I just thank you and I praise you and I ask for your continued guidance and blessing upon each and every person here. That we truly can leave here people who are transformed and changed by you. And that you will continue to transform us and change us by your grace and by your love. It's my prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. One last